0: So we invite you to look at YouVersion and to be about that. And while you're on YouVersion, you might want to stop by and check out a devotional by Francis Chan that is about the book of James, actually. So we encourage you to check that out. Next slide, please. So Francis Chan does some great work. Uh, One of our small groups did that this summer. And so, if you'll check that out, and you want to do that devotional, I encourage you to do that, to follow along as well. I'm going to start doing that devotional too, because I've heard so many good things. And of course, Francis Chan always does great things. So, I look forward to those challenging words he has for me as well. So, James, tradition has it, was the brother of Jesus Now, there is some considerable doubt as to whether that James ever wrote this letter. But in the book of Acts, we see James stepping up to be the leader of the fledgling church. And I like to imagine this letter is written as the result of being the brother of Jesus and of listening to all that Jesus was saying to him all his life. See, for James' whole life, he lived in that shadow Maybe there was a time when James idolized his big brother. you ever done that if you have a bigger brother? Maybe there was a time when James began to resent Jesus and the special treatment that he received from his mother who treated him as though he were a special gift from God. Doesn't everybody get that in their family, right? But in this case, he actually was a special gift from God. You can tell your other brother or sister they are not. Okay, you're you're the special gift from God. Maybe James grumbled about the things Jesus would say. As though he was some kind of prophet. Some kind of teacher. Who do you think he is? But James was a doer. James was faithful. And maybe after Jesus' death, James looked at himself in the mirror... And he didn't like what he saw. You ever done that? So when the resurrected Jesus showed up and said, "I need you." James the Doer stepped up. Now James, the writer here, was writing to a Jewish people of modest means. Who were being oppressed by the rich, who dragged them before the courts and blasphemed the whole honorable name by which the believers were called, we'll find out in chapter 2, and kept back the wages of believers in chapter 5, we find out later. They were being persecuted and mistreated. And it's because of all of this that James counsels patience. James addresses in the first chapter their trials and temptations saying, Consider it pure joy because you know the testing of your faith produces perseverance. And he counsels prayer for wisdom and prayed in faith without doubts and pronounces a blessing on those who endure temptation because they will receive the crown of life. And he counsels them not to think of temptations as being sent by God. Because God tempts no one, he says. And that brings us to today's verses. Where first, James says, God brought us forth. One of my favorite verses, every good and perfect gift from above. A better translation of that is every generous giving and every perfect gift is from above. You see, James is showing that God is good. So the gifts that come from God are good rather than evil. As he continues on, coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights. Remember back at creation? where God said, let there be what? That was the weakest I've ever heard. But Thank you, Sean, because I heard you among everybody else. Oh, you said it? You did? Let there be what? Remember, there's only about 25 of us in here, so you're going to have to be 100. And everybody at home, you may have said it, but I can't hear you. I can only hear these fine folks here. Only Dana. I can only hear Dana. Let there be light. And there was light. And God created the great lights of the heavens. Genesis 1.14 And the conflict between light and darkness, what wins? Light. Light always wins. Darkness can never dispel light. Light always dispels darkness darkness and who does not change like shifting shadows we think of the sun and the moon and the stars as always faithful but those heavenly lights are obscured by the clouds right a couple of nights ago we were out eating and uh, you know the big moon was out there it's like oh this is pretty amazing and then what happened big cloud came right over it was gone I'm like okay great got to see that for about two seconds it's out of there They don't present themselves when need the most. But God's not like that. God is unchangeable, he's saying. God is accessible to us by day and night, through good times and bad times and even life and even in death. Amen? What he's saying to is that God is always there, even more than the heavenly lights, and that He chose. We get the sense that something deliberate here. There's a resolute God who's carrying out a creative vision. God's own will chose to do what? To give us birth through the word of truth. That we might be a kind of first fruits to all He created. You see, God required the Israelites to bring their first fruits as an offering to God through the Old Testament. We see it again and again. And the idea behind the first fruits was that the first fruits of any harvest are especially valuable. We have first fruits hanging on both of these trees. They're the jump start, they're the best. The first fruits are the ones you're waiting for, the first cherry off a tree, the first tomato off the vine, the first pumpkin spice off the line. They're the firsts. And they represent something that we have to do without for a period of time because once the firsts are there, they're gone. And you're waiting for the firsts. So when James tells his believers in the early church they are the first fruits of God's creatures, he's letting them know they're special. He's letting us know that we are special. That God finds exceptional pleasure in them and in us. That's what He's getting across to them while they're being persecuted. And these believers are not only precious to God, but they're also a signal of a great harvest. Because the first fruits indicate what? There's more fruit coming. So the first fruits are just the start of filling up the trees. And those first fruits then indicate a church that will spread Jesus everywhere. Remember, in the first century, they're just starting out. They have great plans and great hopes of spreading the news of Jesus to every corner of the world. Would we have that same hope today for us? Because I think sometimes that's lacking. You get yours, I'll get mine. We'll be just fine. Second, James tells us to be swift to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. And he makes a special note of this. My dear brothers and sisters, take note of this. When that's used, that phrase signifies something really important is about to be said. So please make sure that you listen. And that's when he says, everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, right? What wonderful advice. People hunger for someone who will listen to them, amen? People just want to be heard, even if we don't agree. But nowadays, most of the time, we don't even bother to listen before we're ready to speak. If your answer is already in your mind, and you've already figured out what needs to be said, you haven't listened at all because you've already formulated the whole time your answer to whatever somebody said. Remember in school, as soon as the hand goes up, what happens? Stop listening. Right answer that question really quick, then they raise that hand like, I got it, and they're like, that wasn't even the question I'm going to ask. quick to listen, slow to speak. We prize listeners. We'll often say about people, they are a great what? Listener. I don't hear that a lot unless it's probably negative where we say they're a great talker. Usually what I hear with that is they like to talk a lot. And that's not a positive thing. But listening is... Always a positive thing. The late Dr. Joyce Brothers, the psychologist and television personality, said, Listening, not imitation, may be the sincerest form of flattery. Listening and not imitation may be the sincerest form of flattery. You know, we do active listening when I'm doing marriage counseling and premarital counseling and that sort of thing. And active listening involves being able to actually hear what the person says and be able to say it back to them before you can ever respond. So what that means is is that you have to be able to listen to what they said and then say it back to them. They have to be able to say, yep, you heard me correctly or you're way off base. And then they're able to respond. Do you know how much more time it takes to do that? But do you know how much less fighting will happen? you ever been involved in a fight in your marriage or a friendship or something else where someone thinks you said something, but you didn't really say it that? Like, I didn't even say that. We spend all of our time getting ready for the aftermath instead of preparing our hearts to receive and to actually understand what it is that someone is trying to say to us in the first place. Could the same listening listening counsel be true for prayer? We often think of prayer as talking to God and that's legitimate. But prayer can also be listening from God. For God to speak to us. One way to listen is to read the Bible. Ask God to help you understand how a passage applies to you. That's listening. Listen prayerfully for the answer. Frank Laboc, a Christian missionary, said this, and it's, it's, it's very interesting. He said, The trouble with nearly everyone who prays is that they say amen and they run away before God has a chance to reply. We lay out all of our prayers and we say all of our things And we say amen and we run away before God's a chance to reply. And he says, listening to God is far more important than giving God your ideas. Amen? It makes you think, doesn't it? If we stuck around and actually listened to what God had to say to us after we were done with our amen, that maybe God would then speak to us. And then slow to become angry. So everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. Again, excellent advice. Quick-tempered people are also likely to be quick to speak and do it in a way that hurts others and damages relationships and ironically hurts their chances of getting what they want in the first place. The humorist Will Rogers who said lots of great things said this, people who fly into a rage always make a bad landing. People who fly into a rage always make a bad landing. How many times do you get to see on Facebook or on the news, somebody's pulled a gun on somebody else? Collierville. What would lead this young man who had worked there apparently to come back and try to wipe out his coworkers and anybody else he can get his hands on? What makes you so angry that you're able to do that? We don't understand it. It makes no sense to us. But James doesn't prohibit absolutely anger. He says anger is sometimes appropriate. We call it righteous indignation. We talked about this during Ephesians. There's an appropriate place for anger. Jesus was angry at the money changers in the temple for numerous reasons, that was legitimate anger. But slow to speak still applies, even when we are angry. And not to attack people, but to do our best to be able to talk about the issue, to not say all the things in our head that we want to say. That's hard sometimes. We'll always, almost always, accomplish more by measured words and actions than by flying off the cuff in anger. You know why that is, James says? Because human anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires. Human anger does not produce righteousness. The what God wants from us. You see, quick anger is likely to produce sinful words and actions, the opposite of the righteousness of God. God doesn't want us to do that. God wants us to think before we speak. God wants us to consider the person. God wants us to be able to figure out what to do. Even when we're seething inside. And we can't even think straight anymore. That's even more important to turn to God. To do our best not to become into rage like we talked about in Ephesians. Third James tells us to be doers of the word. Here's the key verse for the whole series. Therefore, get rid of all the moral filth of the evil and evil that is so prevalent. So the therefore is connected to nineteen and twenty, which means that James considers overly quick and speech and anger to be evil when they're not righteous. To be evil. The Greek word means to renounce or lay aside or put off. Believers are supposed to play an active role in getting rid of avoiding our anger. We need to avoid our anger. And we can and should pray for God's help in this challenging endeavor. But we must also do our best to live holy lives because then anger doesn't get a hold of us in the same way. And we don't act in the same way. And then he says, and humbly accept the word planted in you which can save you. I think this is one of the best parts of this all these verses. Humbly accept the word planted in you which can do what? Save you. Can save you. The putting away is just the first step. Once we rid ourselves of the filth and the wickedness, we must fill the void by receiving with what? Humility, the implanted word. Humility. A word we struggle with, especially when it's anger, to be humble and this implanted word. And although we play a significant role in ridding ourselves of filth and wickedness, it's clear that what he's saying is the implanted word is a gift from God. It's implanted. You didn't plant it, right? It's implanted. If you get an implant, you don't do that yourself. It's implanted. And do not merely listen to the words all all together. Do not merely listen to the Word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. We must go beyond hearing the Word to doing it. To living it. Paul says in Romans 2.13, For it isn't the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. Justified. To be made right. Jesus said, blessed are those who hear the Word of God and do what? Keep it. Isn't just James saying this. Guess where he learned it from? His big brother. Hear the Word and also keep it. And those key words in the middle of that, so deceive yourselves. Because those who hear God's Word but fail to live it, delude themselves, James says to all of us. They think their relationship with God is solid, but it isn't. If you just know the Word but you don't live it out, that's not a solid relationship. That's like telling God, I love you, I love you, I love you, I love you. And on the other hand, it's like telling people you hate them. Those two things can't go together, no matter what. It doesn't work. And that's what he says. In the final judgment, they will learn they have failed the test. Because Jesus says, unless, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, there is no way you will enter into the kingdom of heaven. Unless... Your righteousness exceeds those of the scribes and the Pharisees. He knew the law backwards and forwards. You will not receive and enter into the kingdom of heaven. So fourth, James shares the blessings for doers of the word. What do we get out of this? What happens? And he says, anyone who listens to the word but does not do what it says is like someone who looks at his face in the mirror. First part. Now just think about that. Visualize the fact of looking at yourself in the mirror before you got ready this morning, if you did. Or in your cell phone screen, or whatever you do to be able to figure that out. You looked in something probably. Everybody probably has a mirror in their house somewhere. And you looked in to make sure that your hair was the right way, and you actually buttoned up your collar on your shirt, and you're wearing pants, and I don't know what else. I hope there's other stuff. But, and he says that after looking at himself, goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. When you leave the mirror to go and leave, do you forget what you look like? I think right now, probably there's an image in your mind of exactly what you looked like when you looked in the mirror this morning. Wherever it was, whether it was out the door or whatever. And he's not really talking literally about looking at yourself in a mirror. I think this is more not the natural person's face, but being reborn face, the follower of Jesus. Born again, remember? Jesus says it all the time. You must be born again. New face, new life, new body. Born from above. I mean, think about it in in the sense of that. When we start our day by looking at our face in the mirror, hopefully recognize the fact is that we're a child of God. That's the first thing that you should really notice about yourself, is not how your hair looks or anything else, but I am a child of God. Say that with me. I am a child of God. You just say that stuff to your mirror. Have you ever done those little self help things where you have to tell yourself nice things into a mirror and it's the hardest thing in the world? And we're sad about that. It's the hardest thing in the world. Why is it so hard to tell ourselves anything good about ourselves? How have we been trained? And so you, you look at yourself in the mirror, recognize your identity as a child of God, but then you wade into the whirlpool of daily life. You look good. When you're get ready out the door, you're all charged and ready to go for the day, but then you head into the, wade into the whirlpool of life, get caught up in the worldly concerns and forget our godly identity. It doesn't take much and then we fail to live according to our spiritual identity because we're so caught up in the world and in the whirlpool and everything that's going on in the whirlwind that we forget. Who we are. And we fail to proceed beyond hearing the Word to living the Word. And we act just like everybody else out there, everywhere, doing the same thing. Irritated because we had to wait in line at the grocery store. Irritated because the gas pumps were full. Irritated because our co-workers are not playing nice today. Irritated by everything else so we don't act anything different As a Christian than the person that we know sitting right there with us isn't. And maybe sometimes even worse, because at least the person who doesn't claim to be a Christian in the first place has no real thing to live up to. You should expect them to live a certain way because there isn't anything else to live for. But if we as Christians are the ones who tear people down and hurt each other and go to our co-workers and aren't the ones to lift them up and we go to the places and we're mad at that teller and we're mad at that person at Kroger and we're mad wherever else we go and because someone stole our parking space or whatever else or someone cuts off on the road. If we act the same way, then what he says is, where is your identity? Where's the identity you had looking in the mirror when you got up that morning to know that I'm a child of God? And by the converse of saying that, what do you say to somebody else? They are a child of God too. And James says we forget all of that. And we become the hearers of the Word and we hear it so well like today and by tomorrow that Word is somewhere out there in the ether. We're not doers of the Word. And he continues, But whoever looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom. This verse shows the other side of the coin. The person who hears the Word and remembers it and lives it. This is what it looks like for them. Now keep in mind that James is writing to the Jewish readers in mind. When he says the perfect law, they would naturally think of the law of Moses. But the phrase, the perfect law of freedom, moves the discussion from there into the beliefs of the Christians. The Mosaic law had 613 commandments prescribed in great detail as to what a person could and could not do. If you didn't do all 613, you did not fulfill any of them. All of them had to be fulfilled. And the Talmud, thousands more rules, try to specify the exact limits of the commandments. It says the limits like working on the Sabbath. And even biblical scholars had problems remembering all of those rules at the same time. And that's why Christ comes to set us free with grace. To set us free with the law of love. You see, that's why He gives commandments about that. Love God, love your neighbor, and do what? Love yourself. He was full of grace. Meaning the transgressor could also be a believe who is also a believer could expect the blood of Christ to make him or her whole in his sight. That's the freedom. The freedom that allows us to treat others differently. Because what we received. And intently and continue in it are the words that's used. And the word is composed of two words, with and remain. So literally it means, remain with. Remain with. It says, sticks with it. And in that content it means persevere, continues. Whoever looks intently, whoever perseveres into the perfect law that gives freedom, then will do this, not forgetting what they have heard, but doing it. Because James is speaking of doers of the Word, but here now he's speaking of being a doer of the work. A doer of the work means we actually go out and live it out. And that final accounting, if they played back your life, and it's like you were so good about coming to church on Sunday morning and being in Sunday school and being in Bible study and everything else, but you left on Monday morning and terrorized the world the rest of the week. How would you like that played back for you? Jerry, let's play back this last week for us. Let's see what we got going on. No, oh, wow, you did really good on Sunday, Jerry. Monday looks, well, you're still doing all right. By Wednesday, Jerry, you lost it. We, we really went downhill quick, Jerry. I'm really looking for something better from you this week. it would be the same way for all of us, one way or another. That's the deal. But if we're doing the work... The person who does a good work, a good deed, is not satisfied simply to hear the Word, but they act in accordance with the Word. If the Word says to love our neighbor, what are we supposed to do? Love our neighbor! There's no qualification. There's no, well, if they're not a jerk. If we say we love him and don't live out his words, then what is that really saying? How many times maybe in your own life, in your own family, whatever, someone said something to you, and it's just words. It's never lived out. And in that then, we find ourselves getting lost. Because the difference between the hearer and the doer is the difference between lip service and service. You know, lip service. I'm going to get that done. I'm going to do that. I'm going to be better next time. I'm going to do that differently. And then the next time happens, and the next time happens, and the next time happens, especially with abusers, this happens all the time. The next time is going to be better. And it never is. The difference between empty discipleship and full commitment Maybe the difference between life and death. Jesus said, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the what? The will of my Father who is heaven. Even Jesus talks about it again and again. We need to hear that. We don't like these kind of words. They require us to do something more than we want to do. They require us to live out our lives in the same way that Jesus asked us to. We need to study God's Word, but that's not sufficient. You can study God's Word all the time. Not live a single page out. You may be too heavenly bound to be any earthly good. We must allow the Word to reshape our lives. They will be blessed in what they do. God will bless the person who allows the Word to reshape their life so they can do good works. And last, James tells us there are blessings for doers of the work. In these last two verses, James takes his general principle, doing God's Word, doing doing good works, and gives three examples of what would be required. First, he says, controlling the tongue. Say controlling the tongue. You're still there with me, I like it. Controlling the tongue is the first thing. Those who consider themselves religious, and yet do not keep a tight rein on their tongues, deceive themselves... And the religion is worthless. How is that for an upbeat phrase? That's biting. James also told the, us reading to be slow to speak. In chapter 3, he'll go into greater detail the importance of words. But the person who fails to restrain his tongue fools themselves, deceives his heart. Their religion is worship, worthless. Their worship is in vain. If you can't control your tongue, don't go to Jesus. Unless you're going to turn it around. You can't do one thing and speak one thing and then do something totally different over here and think somehow your world is compartmentalized between church and the world. That's the whole reason Christians were called to be in the world but not of it. To be something different. We should be able to spot each other out of their acting in the ways that we should be acting, uplifting people, helping them, not tearing them down. And they should wonder, why is that person so different? Why aren't they mad because the cash register broke in this line and now I picked the wrong line? Why aren't they mad because, you know, someone cut them off? Why aren't they? And yet we know today, right now, during this time, everybody's mad. And the Christians aren't any better. Actually, some of them are worse. (laughs) So that's the first thing. And James doesn't use the word hypocrite here, but the word comes to mind. Hypocrite is a pretender. A person who appears to be something, someone other than he or she really is. We like to use the word hypocrite for somebody else, but we don't like to use the word hypocritical for ourselves. We like doing that for somebody else. Debbie, you're a hypocrite. We don't like to go, you know what? I'm a hypocrite. Playing a role. Pretending. It's what they were. And Jesus says in Matthew 23, the hypocrites say and don't do. They bind heavy burdens in others, but will not lift a finger to help them. They do their work to be seen by men. They love public acclaim. They devour widows' houses and as a pretense, make long prayers." Second, visiting vulnerable people, helping them. Religion that God our Father accepts is pure and faultless as this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress. Christ expects us to have compassion for those who are unable to provide for their own needs. Widows and orphans are good examples, but that's not everybody. There are many others who are vulnerable. What are you doing to help vulnerable people? you come across in your life. And I don't mean just like Room of the Inn shows up and you got 13 guys captured together. I mean every day and every minute and the people that you meet, both Christians and non-Christians, people here and there and everywhere, what do you do to help the vulnerable? And third, keeping ourselves unstained by the world. To keep oneself from being polluted by the world. The Greek word combines without and blemish or spot. Christ needs our moral conduct to be such that it honors his name. I mean, think about it. If I got two apples in front of me, and this apple looks really nasty, and it's been sitting around for a while, and it's got this huge, nice dent in it, and I got this apple over here that looks pristine and brand new and everything, which apple are you going to choose? You're going to buy from Kroger the apple that looks bad? without blemish or spot. Worship. That's worship. And so He calls us without spot or blemish and calls us to walk in His moral footsteps. James's bigger brother calling all of us to do that. And by the world. We live in a world that's opposed to God. It's a cosmos world. Not going to be complete until Christ comes back a world is often evil, a world that tempts us to think thoughts and perform acts that threaten to undo us and separate us from God at every single turn. We need to resist the pull of the cosmos world towards things that would bring dishonor in us and compromise our witness to Christ. And they're everywhere. And we all succumb to it. And we fail on Facebook and what we write. And we fail it in person and we get angry and upset and we're tired of our job and we're tired of our life and we're tired of wearing a mask and we're tired of this and all I ever hear is we're tired of something. Even when I ask the question every week, what are you excited about? Which my friend Ben Voss is really big about. What are you excited about this week? Do you know that I have people who can't even tell me one thing But they can tell me ten things they're tired of. But not the one thing they're excited about. That's the world that we live in now. But it's not the world of Christ. And James wants to teach us how to do that by being doers of the Word, not just hearers of the Word. You see, faith plus action. This is what he's saying that Martin Luther couldn't hear faith plus action one more slide Davis yeah you must have pulled it too early there it is faith plus action it's not faith minus it's faith plus action not minus faith it's not what James is saying to us not what he won't say through this whole book Faith plus action. Say that with me. Faith plus action. That's what we're talking about. Being doers of the Word. And if you think about that, as I was uh, considering everything and looking at everything, and I, I was listening to um, Caleb this morning. I'm in the car for seven minutes. Seven minutes. And guess what? The DJ is talking about avoiding anger of all the things in seven minutes. And she tells a story about a father and a son, and the son is just angry all the time, and he's trying to help him learn how to control his anger and what to do with that anger. And he's running out of options and things are happening and he can't seem to get control of it and he decides to to get two objects in his hand to give to his son. He gives him a hammer and gives him some nails. And he says, every time that you're angry, I want you to go and hammer in a nail in the fence in the back. So the son takes the hammer and the nails and he goes and and when he's angry, he puts in the nails. So that first... That first day alone, he puts in 30 nails. And each day, it becomes less and less over time. So at the end of it, finally, his, he talks to his dad and says, Look, Dad, I didn't put a single nail in today. I didn't get angry at all. And so that is, the dad says, That's awesome. He said, "Now, what I want you to do is, I want you to start taking out a nail every time that you're not angry." So he goes and he begins doing that, and you can imagine the first day was 30. How many nails he might have had by you know the time of doing this, and he begins to take them out, you know, day after day. And when he gets done taking all the nails out, his dad looks at him and says, "That's amazing. I'm so proud of you, son, for doing this. But I want you to look at this fence." He at, son looks at the fence. And dad says, You notice all the holes. You took all the nails out, but the holes still remain. And this fence will never be what it was. And these holes will never go away. If we avoid our anger, then we stop driving the nails into a fence of our lives and the lives of others that will never go away. You can never take back what you say. You can never take back what you do. The more nails you put in, maybe you can take them back out. But you can never take care of the holes that they create. That's what James is trying to say to us today. Avoid anger so you don't create the holes in the first place. So my invitation to you is you're welcome. We haven't done this in a while and we just you know, get out of the habit of it. But if you want to come kneel at these rails and let something go to God and let some of those nails out of your life and if you want to sit in your pew or sit at home and, and just spend some time in meditation and just praying to God and saying, God, let this anger out of me, whatever it is, help me to avoid it I'm going to have have a quick fuse. Help me to be able to consider how I'm hearing the word and doing the word, whatever it is. Just spend some time during this last song doing that and respond in the way that God is leading you this morning to avoid your anger. good news is God has given us everything that we need to avoid our anger. We don't have to live in it. We don't have to be quick. We can be slow. Give God time to be able to work in us and the words and everything else and, and not get into that place. And even when our heart's pumping and we're so angry to not raise that finger on the roads, not pull that gun out. Not get so frustrated and irritated that we let somebody else have it. We can do that. Because of, David, pull back that um, refrain there for a second. One more. I will live. Half of the bridge, thanks, Debbie. All right, that moment's gone. Thanks. It talks about what is the second half of the bridge? Debbie, read that for me real quick. Oh I, you. presence, I oh, I will ever love and trust you in your presence. I will live. If we'll live in God's presence, then we'll be able to to find what we need to avoid our anger. So, here, these words of benediction go out and be doers of the word. Cleanse your hearts of all pollution. Be quick to listen and learn. Welcome the word that God implants in you and bring it to birth in acts of righteousness and compassion. And may God pour grace upon you and bless you forever. And may Christ Jesus reveal to you the truth of God's ways. And may the Holy Spirit fill your life with passion and love. We go in peace to love and serve the Lord. In the name of Jesus Christ. Everybody both here and at home said together. Amen.